There are three very important things that I need for you to understand about this morning's lesson before we begin it. Please try to keep them in mind throughout. Number one, I feel maybe a little bit this morning like Jude may have felt when he wrote his epistle. As you will recall, Jude had a totally different thing in mind, but he had to change at the last minute according to Jude 3, and I will tell you right now that I had a completely different sermon in mind to preach this morning. As late as the beginning of last week, but between a phone call that I received on Monday afternoon and a much needed and to be heeded Marco Polo that I heard on Tuesday morning, my thoughts and my preparations took a totally different turn. That is number one. Number two, this lesson this morning is developed in part as a direct effort to seek to do what the Apostle Paul insisted upon by divine inspiration in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, wherein he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, Paul says, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering or patience, your version may say, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring or striving to keep the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace, keeping this text in mind as a second essential pillar that led to this morning's lesson. Please notice he said, with all lowliness, it means putting myself second behind others, with gentleness, with patience. He knew that we were all going to be different and there were going to be times that we were going to need some patience. He called it long suffering in some versions, the translations say. He knew that we were going to have to bear with one another because let's face it, we're not all going to agree on all things. And so he said with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, striving, working at it to keep the unity of the spirit the bond of peace. Third thing I would ask you to keep in mind as we get through this lesson. This lesson is delivered this morning out of nothing short of a sincere, abiding, and everlasting love for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his church, and for each and every one of you who are washed in the blood, members of that church, just as I am. Having established those three essential elements, let us begin. This past Monday, Karen and I were on the way to a Hope Harbor thrift store to deliver some stuff, and I got a call from an area code that I did not recognize. And so I took the call, and it was a good brother in Alabama. First name's Kirk. Don't remember his last name. It was, anyway, it doesn't matter. And so he was talking about the division in the brotherhood over the one cup, our one cup brethren, and those of the rest of us who believe multi-containers are okay based on our study to take communion out of. And he had bought a copy of, of my book out there on this very thing, and, and he, was, he was heartbroken. He said, 
He talked with folks in that particular mindset that believe that it's one cup and one cup only, and he said, they're such good people, and I said, yes, they are. And he said, I've been trying to talk, he said, to some of them, but they just won't listen. He said, how does that happen? And I want to reiterate that for just a minute. They're our brethren. They were baptized into Christ for the same reasons we were. They're part of that one body, that, that one church. They use probably 90 to 95% of the scriptures that we use to prove the same things. And yet, our one cup brethren are so deeply convicted, deeply convicted of their one or two differences, particularly when it comes to communion of all things. The one thing in the church that should draw us together is communion, amen? It's the one thing we're split over or that they have chosen to divide over. It's gotten so bad that they won't even begin to sit in the same building to worship with us. If you look through the Churches of Christ directory in the United States, some of these little towns you see in, in, in several different states, a number of states, you see this little town, doesn't have a very big population, and they'll have a small church of 40, 50, 60, whatever the number is, and then they'll have this little group of one-cuppers that are like 20 or 30 or whatever it is. They can't even sit in the same building in that small town. Can you imagine how hard that makes evangelism? We're part of the Lord's one church. Okay, how come there's two of you? Think about it. This, this, this division, it is so bad that they won't even sit in the same building and take communion with their brethren who are part of the same church because they're convinced that if we use more than one cup that we're going to hell. How, how does that even start to happen? How, think, how does that even begin? That was his question. And actually the answer is pretty simple. It's the same one I gave him, roughly. This type of division over any topic, pick your topic, I don't care what it is. This type of division happens when any group of people take any Bible topic, refuse to study all of the relevant verses on that topic, then they come to a less than fully informed conclusion on that topic, stake their entire religious perspective on the few but incomplete number of verses which they did study or take somebody's word for on that topic, and then, with an incomplete picture of the entire spectrum of verses on that topic, they seek to impose their less than full understanding of that topic as law on everybody else or else. Any topic, pick your topic. Sort of like the denominationalist who has staked their claim on these verses that they've either been told about or they've studied themselves on salvation to the total neglect of every single verse that talks about baptism's essentiality for salvation. They will study a group of, of texts on belief that relate to being saved, but all of the verses that talk about being saved and talk about the essentiality of baptism, they'll completely neglect those and they'll stake out their claim on just this little bunch of verses over here that talk about faith or grace. You can't do that. You've got to take all the verses on a given topic in order to get the full picture. The staking out your claim on just a few verses is something that our one cup insistent brethren have done and they've actually gone a step further and instituted full God forbidden division over. You see, 
And you can write these verses down, and we can talk about them later if you want, or whatever. But after studying this topic for a long time, what they've done is they have staked their entire theological understanding of the cup on Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 8, without taking into account Jesus' explanation of what he actually meant by the figurative use of the word cup, that is the fruit of the vine in verse 29. He tells you what he meant by the cup. He clarifies it. They've done the same thing with Mark chapter 14, verses 23 and 4. To the total exclusion of the very next verse, Jesus' explanation of what he meant by the cup was the fruit of the vine. Verse 25. Somehow they've either overlooked or, or, or not taken into full account or context or something. Luke 22 and verse 17. Luke 22 and verse 17 says that Jesus told them to take the cup and divide it down among themselves. Luke 22 and verse 17 proves without a doubt that Jesus commanded his disciples to divide the cup down among themselves, obviously talking about the fruit of the vine. They didn't break the cup into 12 pieces. They were to break it down. They were to divide it down among themselves before partaking, which is exactly what we do, right? We divide the fruit of the vine, just like Jesus and the disciples did that night. And some fail to take into account the context of such text is 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 17. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 17, <clears throat> excuse me. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's several hundred miles away, and he's writing to the Corinthians, and he talks about the cup we all share, the cup that was shared in the congregation that he was writing from, the cup that was shared by the Corinthians, and he talked about this one cup we bless. Well, how could they bless it hundreds of miles apart if it was the same literal cup? You know what I'm talking about? He's talking about the fruit of the vine in the cup. Figurative language, it's as simple as that. I want to show you how dangerous it can be. Does, does God hate division? God hates division. I want to show you how dangerous it can be by taking a totally different topic and staking your claim out on one or two verses on that topic and saying if everybody else doesn't agree with you on that, when there's all kinds of different verses on the topic, but, but we're going to stake our claim on this one little piece of theological ground right here to the exclusion of everything else that's said about the topic, and you better agree with our two verses. I want to show you how that works. Here we go. Be like taking scripture on prayer. Have you ever thought about this? Think about prayer. Okay, let's talk about prayer. And saying, okay, for those of you who have taken notes, get ready, because I'm not turning to any of these. You can only pray while you're weeping in anguish, because that's what Hannah did in 1 Samuel 1.10. 1 Samuel 1.10 says that she wept in anguish. So if you, are, if you are not crying in anguish when you pray, you can't pray. That's my verse. I'm going to stake out that. I don't care what all the other verses say. I'm going to stake out my claim on that one. Then you've got the brother or sister that says, well, you can only pray when you're facing the wall. Can't pray if you're not facing the wall because that's what King Hezekiah did in 2 Kings 20 in verse 2. Another one says, well, you can only pray if you've fallen on your face because that's what Jesus did in Matthew 26, 39. Another person comes together to stake out their theological ground on prayer. 
to the exclusion of all other verses. And they say, oh, wait a minute, you can't pray together. If, you're, you're, if you pray together, you're not going to heaven. You can't pray together. You can only pray if you're alone in a solitary place because that's what it says Jesus did in Mark 1.35 and Luke 5.16. You see how ridiculous this can get if you don't take all the verses? Somebody says, well, you can only pray if you're kneeling down like Peter did in Acts 9.40. If you're not kneeling when you pray, your prayer is fruitless. I'm not sure what they'd have done with King Solomon in his dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. He began standing up, and when he got, down, he was, when he got done, he was kneeling. It was a long prayer, apparently. We see this in 1 Kings 8, verses 22 and then 54. I guess you could form a separate fellowship from those who sought to impose their belief that one had to kneel not just anywhere but on the shore because that's what Peter and the brethren in Tyre did in Acts 21 verse 5. Say, no, 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 you can't pray on the shore, you've got to pray in the house because that's what it says Cornelius did in Acts 10 and verse 30. Or you can only pray while you're fasting, especially when you're appointing elders, according to Acts 14 and verse 23. Listen. If anybody took one of those verses to the exclusion of all others, I'm not going to study the others, this is my verse, this is what I'm standing on, this is what I'm going to do. Then, and if you don't all agree with me, then we can't, we can't eat and we, we can't have communion in the same building. Wouldn't that be pitiful? Wouldn't that be awful? This means yes, this means, come on people, wake up. This be, there you go, all right. Now, this is different, just so nobody gets the wrong idea here. This is different. We're not talking about like the instrumental music issue. Let's just be clear because there's eight verses in the New Testament. All of those talk about singing and singing only. There's no discussion here because there's no contrarian verse where that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, see, this is the problem that we get into sometimes. God has said in certain cases there's one way to do something, right? There's one way. We all know that, right? For example, in, in the text here in Ephesians 4, right after he talks about unity and bearing with one another and endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit, he tells you seven things. There's only one of. There's no art. There can't be an argument here. There is one body. That is church. He's already told you that in Ephesians 1, 22 and 3. There's one body, one spirit, as you were called in one hope of your calling. We only have one hope in our calling and that's to go to heaven, right? Okay. One hope of your calling. There's one Lord. There's not, there's not another Lord. There's only one Lord. There's only one faith. Now, the world can have all the different faiths that they want, but according to God, there's one faith. The faith once delivered for all the saints, Jude 3. There's only one faith. There's one Lord, one faith. There's one baptism. It is not baptism of babies. It is not sprinkling. It is baptism by immersion for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2 and verse 38, Colossians 2 and verse 12 and others. Okay? There's only one. And there's only one God. One God and Father. Only one. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. There's only one. See, God has told us in a lot of instances there's only one. One fill in the blank, okay? But my question is, have we become so used to that that when God allows for several different, that we still insist there's one? Like posture for prayer. Is there more than one posture for prayer? I just listed you a bunch of them. So for me to insinuate or insist upon just this one based on this one verse, 
to the exclusion of all others, when God said, hey, there's a whole bunch. It's just as wrong. It's when God says there's one body, one faith, one baptism to insist there's more. Either way is blasphemy. But this sermon this morning is not about that. That's just the introduction. What could possibly be worse is my question. Those were just illustrations. What could possibly be worse than a person staking out their claim on this verse, on prayer posture, and this one on prayer posture, or, or this saying one cup, and this saying, staking out that, that there's only one when God's allowed more than one. Let me ask you a question. Is it okay to take communion from the same cup? Is it okay if a family wants to drink communion from the Is that okay? Yeah, sure is. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Okay? But it's when I insist that you better do it the way I understand it or else and disregard the other verses. That's where the problem comes in. Okay? And that's where the problem comes in on prayer posture or anything else. When God says there's one, there's only one, and I can't say there's multiple. But when God says there's multiple, and I say there's only one, I'm just as wrong. What could possibly be worse than that? What could be worse than dividing the church over that? What could be worse than, than that? I believe there is something that could be worse, or at least as bad. And that would be to be divided to be separated over something that is simply a matter of opinion and doesn't have any text to go with it. I hate these songbooks. I'm going somewhere else to worship. They're the wrong color. I prefer blue. Wouldn't that be awful? If you don't have blue songbooks, you're going to hell. That would be worse, in my opinion, because there's not even any scripture to stand on. It's a matter of opinion. How terrible. And yet, division of the Lord's body over a matter of opinion is exactly what we find in the congregation in Corinth. Turn to me to 1 Corinthians 3. They're divided over a matter of opinion, not even scripture. As Kirk brought out in his excellent Tuesday morning Marco Polo segment. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, listen to what Paul says to our brethren in first century Corinth. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, that is worldly. You're acting like the world. As to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food. 1 Corinthians 3 and now verse 2. For until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you're still not able, for you're still carnal. You're still acting like the world. You're not acting like Christ. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? The phrase divisions among you, by the way, can people sit in the same place and be divided? Can that happen? If you don't think so, watch a Super Bowl game, okay? They're sitting in the same place, but they're terribly divided, right? Okay. The phrase divisions among you occurs three times in the New Testament. Three times, divisions among you. Care to guess where all three of them are located? Right in 1 Corinthians. Corinth was divided. 
Now, that doesn't mean that they were all separating into different places to worship. We'll see that here in a minute. But, but they were divided. There were, there were stark strife and divisions and, and kind of gnawing at each other going on. They're kind of targeting each other and just kind of just yeah, going at it. They may have been in the same place, but they were divided. And they were acting divided. And what were they mostly divided over and acting more like the world around them than the Christ within them? I'll tell you what they were divided over. They were divided, catch this, they were divided over a matter of opinion. That's what they were divided over. They're fighting here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he tells them, you're, you're divided. Look what they're divided over, verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulos, aren't you carnal? What were they fighting over? I'll tell you what they were divided over. They were divided over the matter of opinion, which preacher or teacher was the greatest among them. Verse 4. And this has been going on since chapter 1. This kind of conclusion Paul's getting to. But this, this whole addressing their matter of opinion that was splitting them because they all thought that they followed the greatest preacher in the congregation. This division, look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, where we see that phrase, divisions among you. The first time. Now I plead with you, brethren, 1 Corinthians 1.10, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the authority of Jesus, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no, here it comes, divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? What's his point? He tells you right there in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he sets the stage. He says, there's divisions, there's contentions, there's strife, there's this going on. And he said, it's over who's the greatest teacher, or, or who's the one most worthy of following. Let me ask you something. Is that a matter of opinion? Which teacher is the best? Sure is. Some, okay, listen. <clears throat> I'm going to pick on Steve for a minute. Steve and me and Elvis Denny and anybody else you want to throw in there, okay? For some of you, the way Steve preaches, his style and stuff, it's going to matter to you more. You're going to, wow, I, and, and maybe he taught you. Maybe he led you to Christ. And so he could, he could be, you know, absolutely your favorite preacher. Maybe it was Elvis Denny. Okay? Maybe it was somebody else that's your favorite. But it's a matter of opinion, right? Because the person that's sitting down the pew from you or behind you in the pew, maybe somebody else, their style, maybe it appealed to them a little better. So it's, it's one of those arguments you can't ever win because it's a matter of opinion. And he said, what are you doing wasting your time over matters of opinion? Who's the great? He's still talking about this, chapter 3, verse 4. We just read that. This is, this is what started the letter to the Corinthians. The divided congregation was divided over a matter of opinion. Does that remind you? Those of you who've been here for Sunday morning class, does that remind you of anybody? In Corinth, they hadn't outgrown what the disciples were fighting over, that Jesus got on his feet, got off his feet that night, 
and washed their feet over. What did the disciples been fighting over? Which one of them was the greatest? What are they fighting over in Corinthians? A matter of opinion. Which preacher teacher is the greatest? And that springs off into all the other division. This is, this is where it starts. This is where the book starts. This matter of opinion had divided them to the point, listen to this, that they were going beyond what was written and being puffed up against one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. You know the phrase puffed up. What do you do with a balloon, right? You're, you know, hopefully it don't go bang, right? You puff up a balloon. It was like they were balloons full of hot air. They were all puffed up. Do you know that the phrase puffed up occurs in the New Testament seven times? Guess how many in Corinthians? Five. Why? Because they were so divided over this matter of opinion, who was the best teacher? Not only that, but the Apostle Paul was divinely inspired to use the word shame on them five times as well in this one epistle. Shame, he said. And you really want to hear something sad? These people were so divided. Did they have some wonderful gifts in Corinth? They could speak in tongues, they could raise the dead, they, could, they had some wonderful gifts. But they were so divided that they couldn't even use their gifts together as a church because they were too busy arguing over who had the greatest gift. Isn't that awful? And how do you, quanti how do you quantify that? How do, you, how do you answer who has the greatest gift? If I've got, a, if I've got a, a biological family member who can't understand my language and they need somebody to speak to them in, in, in a different language, a recognizable tongue, and you can do that to me, you're the greatest. You got the greatest gift because it reached them. But if it's my sibling that's died and you can raise them from the dead, you got the great. It's a matter of opinion. It depends on where you are. But this is, this is what they were so divided over. They were so divided they couldn't even take communion together with the proper spirit of love and understanding. They had to be reminded what godly love was. 1 Corinthians chapters 11 and 13. No wonder Paul concluded his second epistle by telling them in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? Rubber meets the road time. Title of this morning's lesson is this. How far is it from Shoto to Corinth. And I'm not talking about miles. And what I'm talking about is an answer that can fluctuate and will depending upon each and every member of the church here. How far is it from Shoto to Corinth? You see, here in the congregation at Shoto, just like every other congregation, I'm guessing, of the, in the United States and around the world, or at least in the U.S., some 11 or 12,000 strong, there are some brethren, brethren in Christ, blood-washed, born again of the water and the spirit, brethren, who are of the opinion, who are completely convinced and convicted in their hearts, that masks 
are the greatest, the absolute be-all and end-all solution to stop the COVID-19 pandemic, and they are going to wear those masks no matter what. But there are other brethren here at Shoto Hills, and I would imagine in every congregation of the Lord's Church all over the world, or at least the United States, we are not alone. There are some other brethren who are of the exact opposite opinion. They are completely convinced that masks create not a lot of help, but maybe further the problem. And they're not going to wear them no matter what. Both sides are completely convicted. Both sides are. Both sides can cite authoritative studies and resources. For either side to be pushed to violate their consciences or convictions by being forced to do what runs contrary to their convictions is to put a stumbling block before them. So strongly held are the opinions, it is awful to me, it, it is awful to me, so strongly held are, are the opinions that I am convinced that if this COVID thing kept going and it, it raged on the way it was three or four months ago into next year, I believe there would come a time and this breaks my heart. I believe that there would have come a time when down the road you not only open up a Churches of Christ directory and you see one cup, one cup congregations and those that use multiple cups, but you more than likely would see no mask and pro-mask congregations. Divided over a matter of opinion. My brethren, these things ought not to be. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? And yeah, I know it's an elephant in the room, but what do we do with it? That, that elephant can't hide under this carpet. Three things. Three things. Number one, just like the Corinthian division of the first century, as well as the one cup versus multi-cup division among us today, the first thing we have to do is understand there are no sides. There are no sides, not in the church. There are no sides. The carnal us versus them mentality has no place in the church. It is not us versus them, brethren. Either side, I don't care where you fall. That us versus them worldly mentality must forever be put to death and left buried beneath the blood, amen? What does the Bible say in Galatians 3, 26 and 7? What does it say? Open to it if you want. I printed it out. There are no sides. It is not us versus them. With our one cup, brethren, it is not us versus them. They are in the same church we are. We just need to, to come together on this matter of opinion. Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You're all sons of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. See, they wanted to have this division, and, and, and Paul said, no. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. But you're all what? One in Christ Jesus. Brethren, there's not pro-mask and no-mask. Brethren, we're all one in Christ Jesus. That's what the word says with my little addition. Second thing we have to do is understand that no matter where we may stand, and everybody's got their opinion on this, and everybody is convicted, no matter where we stand on this matter of opinion, we must determine not to put a stumbling block 
before our brethren who are of the exact opposite opinion. Never to put a stumbling block before our brethren who are of the exact opposite opinion. But I'm here to tell you that road runs both directions. That road is a two-way street. And I'm going to spell it out. And then we're going to read Romans 14, or parts of it. Listen carefully. As to that road running both directions, those who are of the pro-mask opinion must not try to force their brethren who are of the no-mask opinion to violate their consciences, conclusions, and convictions by trying to force them to wear one any more than those who are of the no-mask opinion should try to force their brethren who are of the pro-mask opinion to violate their consciences, conclusions, and convictions by forcing them not to wear one. Because for those of either opinion, notice I didn't say side, for those of either opinion, to try to force those of the opposite opinion to violate their consciences would be to force their brethren to sin. That's what it says in Romans 14. For those of either opinion to try to force those of the other opinion to violate their consciences and convictions would be to force them to sin. Turn to Romans 14, you can see it. Romans 14 was written on matters of opinion. It says this in verses 1 through 3, Receive one who is weak in faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. One believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not, and let him who does not eat judge not him who eats, for God has received him. Do you see it? Could as easily say in today's society, Receive the one who is weak in faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he must wear a mask, but another does not. Let not him who wears a mask despise him who does not wear one, and let him who does not wear one judge him who does. For God has received them both. Look down further in verse 19. Therefore let us pursue the things that make for peace, and the things by which one may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, all things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. But again, that's a two-way street. Neither side should force or compel the other one, sorry, those of either opinion, should not force the one on the other side to be compelled to do it their way and violate their conscience. Because he says, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. You take a person who believes they should wear one all the time, I mean all the time, and you try to tell or force that person not to wear one and go against their conscience, that's just wrong. But it works vice versa too. So what do we do with all of this? Romans 14 says to me, no matter what your opinion is, don't try to force it onto people of the opposite opinion. What do we do with this? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with it. As to my brethren, my blood-bought, blood-washed, born-again of the water and the spirit members of the same Lord's church that I am, 
those brethren, as to those brethren who are of the opinion that a mask is an absolute lifesaver and must be worn no matter what, I don't care if you come through that door up there with two masks on and a set of gloves and a hazmat suit. You know what I'm going to do? I am going to love you. I am going to respect you. I am going to respect your opinion. And I am going to praise God that you are here to worship with your brethren. That's what I'm going to do. And what about those brethren who think that they are of the opinion that a mask is absolutely unnecessary and it doesn't accomplish anything but put spiritual distance between us? You know what? I don't care if you come through that same door. Run down here to that pew and give me a big old hug. You know what I'm going to do? I am going to love you and I am going to respect you and I am going to praise God that you are here to worship God with your brethren. That's what I'm going to do. God doesn't have a problem with us having differences of opinion, brethren. He doesn't. That's why Romans 14 is in the Bible. But God has a problem when we're divided over them. Do you see that? When we can't love one another the way we ought to. The third and final thing we have to do with this begins with remembering what we did before. Remember what you did before? There was a time when being a member of the Shoto Hills Church of Christ Shoto Hills Church of Christ. There was a time when that meant VBSs conducted both here and elsewhere, marriage seminars, gospel meetings, tri-states. There was a time when being a member of the Shoto Hills Church of Christ meant knocking doors and meals of love and teenagers training classes on Sunday afternoons and constantly being and working and loving together to the glory of God. And I realize we haven't been able to do that because of laws. I, I understand that. But brethren, this thing's beginning to get to the point where those things are slowly going to begin to come back online like the songbooks in the pew behind, in front of you. You know, I remember a number of years ago, upon returning to the congregation that I served as a preacher at the time, I remember going back to that congregation after Karen and I had been on vacation and we had stopped by Shoto Hills, tail end of our vacation. And I remember preaching a sermon and telling that congregation where I was what an incredible congregation Shoto Hills was because you work together and you accomplish so much. In fact, <laughs> I basically told them that you guys set the standard that they needed to aspire to. Oops. What was true then is still true. You remember the days of having 120, 30, 40 people in this building? You remember those days? Remember, what, remember that? Remember what the singing sounded like? Do you remember how awesome it was to turn around and not see hardly any red fabric anywhere? You remember that? Remember how it felt to pray and, and to fellowship together? Do you remember what that sort of working and worshiping and fellowshipping together felt like? Brethren, do you want that back? I do. In fact, we must get back to that and more. But we're never going to be able to do that until and unless we lay aside all of our differences of opinion. Hear this next sentence. If you don't hear anything else in this sermon, hear this next sentence. And decide that God's corner of the kingdom here in Shoto Hills is the most important thing to us on 
earth. Is the church the most important thing on earth to God? Is it? Then this corner of that same church has to be the most, it's more important than our opinions, than our feelings, it's more important than anything. Jesus died for this. And we've got to put those aside and, and we can work together even if it's six feet apart or I don't care if it's 12 feet apart, but we can work together. We need to, we have to. That's the, that's the design for the church. We need to get back to working together as one solid, loving, united Christian family the way Jesus, did Jesus intend that? Last Sunday evening, as I was leaving the building, one of our elders said to me, we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, we do, he was right. But it can only be done if we're like the Israelites in Nehemiah's day who had a mind to work and we will work together even if it's 12 feet apart. I realize what's on the line preaching a sermon like this this morning. And it's wonderful to see so many here, but I, I love everybody's here. I love everybody that's watching at home, don't get me wrong. But I wanna see the day that we have to put chairs in this building because ain't any red fabric to be found. And that's only going to happen if we can work together as the one united body of Christ. And that is more important than my feelings or my opinion or anybody else's. He said, was it Paul? Was it Peter? Was it? No. Was, it was Christ. Is it still about Christ? If it's not about Christ to you this morning, then why are you here? Of course it's about Christ to you. It's about Christ to you. You wouldn't be watching. It's about his church. It's about going stronger than we've ever been. It's about working together again, and we need to do that. How far is Shoto from Corinth on a matter of opinion and what we do with it? Moments, minutes, months, millennia, or more. Brethren, I believe the answer to that is not light years, but light millennia. I don't believe we're anything like that. I don't. I've seen Shoto at its best. And its best is when we pull together as the one body of Christ. Let's determine from this day forward that Jesus and his people are more important to us than anything on earth, anything, anything. Because to God they are. If you become a member of that church this morning, I would ask that you might Come forward to be baptized into Christ if you have that need, if you need the prayers of the church to pull together. Anything you need, please come to the front as we stand and sing.